0: Well, by the time this is released, we'll all be well into our holiday break. A well-deserved rest for everyone. And if you're one of our regulars, well, thank you for your support over the year. There's not much point talking if nobody is listening. And if you are unwrapping us for the first time, well, thank you. Welcome. And we've got a slightly different episode for you than normal. Rebecca Boston, who joined Instec in July to head up our research and insights team, was invited to join a Camelot event to talk about allyship. And David Clamp, the founder of Camelot, has been kind enough to allow us to use the recording. More about Allyship and the other guests in a minute, but first a word from David about what Camelot is.
1: Camelot is a collection of very experienced senior executives who've been there and done it uh, across the insurance industry, but are now independent advisors. And in three years, we've grown uh, significantly. We're now at about 180, maybe even 190 members from across the whole insurance spectrum.
0: And I asked David why Camelot is running these external events. Using their network to drive
1: these sorts of discussions and take on some pretty challenging topics is really important for us because it's moving the industry forward. Allyship is a great example of that. Powerful, really important, and we want to make a difference.
0: Well, Rebecca is joined on this event by Lothabo Mosledi, co-founder of Voicey; Joanna Abaye, founder of Blue Moon, Paul Jardine, chairman of Asta and Chaucer, and Miriam Reason, founder at Reasonable. And of course, a thanks to Genesis for sponsoring the original Camelot event. Meanwhile, we'll be back next week with one of our popular podcast themes, The Partners Chat, Robin and I with what will be this time our Director's Uncut end of year special. And then hitting the ground running for 2022 with our reports, live events, monthly discussions with over 150 members and everything else you've come to expect from us. But for now, let's find out about Allyship.
2: Hi everyone, I'm Miriam Reason. Uh, I'm a mindfulness teacher and wellbeing consultant. Uh, my business provides uh, mental health training to companies primarily. Uh, but inclusion and diversity as a wider topic is an issue very close to my heart. In my old life, I was co-chair of the LGBT network at Axio and now I'm really happy to be part of the inclusion and diversity think tank with Camelot. So we've got a really great mix of panellists with us today. All of them bring uh, plenty of expertise on this topic. So our first question of the day, what is allyship and why should we care? Now, um, Joanna, given what Blue Moon does, I'd love to start with you. So please could you tell us a bit about what allyship is and why it's important?
3: There is actually an official definition for allyship and there's many floating around. But the ones I rely on is about being trustworthy, consistent and accountable. So it's about en- ensuring that you are exhibiting, promoting, living and breathing anti behaviours. And by that, I mean behaviours that are anti any uh, behaviours that keep inequity in place. So for me, an ally is not necessarily... um Someone that has to be the loudest person in the room and they may not even be an ally when the person who requires allyship is present. It's actually a lot harder to be an ally when you're in a room and you'll get no praise for it. It's actually more important to be an ally in the room when the people you're kind of speaking on behalf of are not there. So for me, it's about creating allyship is about creating trust. So that people know that they can trust you and rely on you to be a consistent ally and that you'll hold yourself accountable as much as you will hold others accountable for ensuring that kind of anti-behaviors. And why is it important? I I say this all the time. Everybody needs an ally. Somebody who might be having a really tough time, as I have in the past with their mental health. They need an ally. Somebody who is, you know, has a neurodivergent need and, and struggles to read PowerPoints. They might need an ally. So that's why it's important. We all need that person to, to, to offer their voice when, when ours is a bit shaken. Thank you so much, Joe. I really like
2: that. Everybody needs an ally. I think that's such a nice way of thinking about it. I'd like to pass it to Rebecca, who I know has a really great example of what allyship looks like in practice, if you wouldn't mind sharing.
4: I think sometimes people get very overwhelmed by the concept of allyship and, and a little bit lost between rights and wrongs. Allyship is about small actions that lead to cumulative consequence, which is exactly what Joanna was talking about. My role model in that is is my mother. My mother was an anti-apartheid campaigner, but not in a traditional sense. You know, she did it in a very small action. She ran an illegal mixed race school in South Africa. She used to secretly bring kids into school in the back of a truck and then return them at the end of the day. She herself did not bring down the whole of apartheid. But, you know, there were lots of people in South Africa who did these individual small actions of allyship. She used her white middle class privilege as an ally to support the education of people who would otherwise not have gotten it. And for me, that's a really powerful example of something small that can lead to cumulative change. So I think if people feel overwhelmed with the concept of allyship, they just need to take a step back and know that every small action we do supporting somebody else, whether a giant said, it's their mental health or maybe, you know, it's allowing them accessing something that they would struggle before that is cumulatively going to change society for the better. So don't feel that, oh, it's too
2: small. It doesn't matter.
4: Everything matters when it comes to allyship.
2: Brilliant. Thank you for sharing that. Um, Latavo, would you like to weigh in? What's allyship for you? Yeah, my experience of allyship, it hits a little bit close to home. I was straight out of
5: Varsity. We were running a 3D printing company and we were in front of an investor. And the whole meeting, and this was one of my first business meetings out of Varsity. The whole meeting, this gentleman just didn't actually acknowledge my presence. Like I was not there. My co-founder for Context is, is a white male, also from South Africa. And it was just a one directional conversation. And I was like, hello, I'm here. Are you going to ask me anything? And I went to my co-founder after that meeting. I was like, did you see that? He's like, did you see what? I'm like, I was not in that room at all. Like there were no questions asked to me. It was basically like there were, that guy was there to meet you. And then the second time it happened, my co-founder was aware that hang on, there's two of us that entered this meeting, yet one of us has asked all the questions. So what he started to do is to say, you know what, Jerry? This is a very good question, but while I can answer it, my co-founder is actually better at responding to it. And so he would pass questions over to me so that um, I would then be included within the conversation. What that looked like offline is whenever uh, Matthew received uh, an email and particularly he would receive technical emails. So how do we do the integration? How does your technology work? All of that, like directed at Matthew he's like, that's a really great question. But I'm just going to um, see my uh, co-founder and CTO who's better suited at answering this. So that is an ally in action, using your privilege and your position to say, yes, I could answer that question. Maybe it is directed to me, but I'm going to hand it over to someone who actually needs a moment to be heard and be listened to.
2: We've had two really uh, different examples of what allyship can look like in practice there, Um, both incredibly uh, meaningful. We've already started to shift into the second question, which is why is allyship the most powerful thing we can do at work? This starts to get us towards, OK, we understand what allyship is and what it might look like. Um, but what what does that mean in a work context? Why is it so important? Um, and, Paul, I know you've got a lot of views on this.
1: Well, thanks, Miriam. I think what's fascinating for me is that there can be no greater achievement for anybody in business than to see others prosper and be successful. And if in some small way, to Rebecca's point about these, it doesn't have to be the grand major action. It's something that makes a difference, that makes a colleague feel more comfortable, uh, more empowered and more able to fulfill their potential. To me, that is the essence of success. And I've been asked publicly asked, what was my greatest achievement in my career? The greatest achievement is seeing colleagues flourish and be successful and and, and actually be very true to themselves and be who they want to be. I always go back to it that when I was at school, I probably didn't realize it at the time, although I know I felt bad. Being Jewish, um, I was kind of excluded from assembly every morning. There was a separate Jewish assembly. And I used to wander in with uh, the small number of other Jewish kids in the school at the end of the main assembly. Now, this was a school with 1500 pupils. And we walked into this grand hall and every single morning people stared. And you suddenly realize you're different and you don't necessarily understand why or what it means. I think being an ally and facilitating, um, as, as, as would was saying, facilitating the ability of, of colleagues to participate to the fullest extent is, is, is the most wonderful thing that you can do. And successful businesses over time and in the future, particularly, Those that embrace allyship and those that maximise their colleagues' potential will be the winners.
2: We've talked a bit about allyship on an individual kind of basis. um, And I know there's like more of a structural element to this as well. Um, So, uh, Joanna, I know you work in inclusive recruitment. What can we bring into this topic on through that lens? Kind of how important is recruitment to this?
3: I think it's the entire employee life cycle. It's attraction, it's recruitment, it's retention, and it's the development and progression of talent. Um, And I think allyship comes into all of those parts, really. It's almost unavoidable. It's the key ingredient, really, to ensure that there is equity, which, of of course, means to give everyone what they need to be uh, successful. So, for example, If I was looking at an attraction strategy and I could see that it was going to specifically speak to a particular group of individuals, then an ally would be actually, what about all the other groups of people that could be just as talented that we're not speaking to? And quite often when we talk about recruitment or attraction, the response typically can be, this is the way we've always done it, or they use a favourite term which I find quite frustrating which is it's best practice to do it this way and quite often I think an ally says it may be best practice but is it effective practice is it effective in giving us um, a diverse range of the best talent if we really think about it we just want the best talent and what we need to challenge and what an ally would do is to challenge what we deem best looks like and actually there's no blueprint of what best looks like They're not a particular age. They're not a particular colour. They're not a particular ability, or they don't have a particular mental health score. The best could be any manner of individuals. You use your position, your influence and power, and your privilege to remove the barriers for somebody else. And I think sometimes privilege is, is blind to those that have it.
2: Thank you. That's really, really helpful. What I'm hearing is all of this is about making sure that we get we get the best people. Um, to the role and that actually as individuals we can all be allies towards this cause mm. which I, I quite like that message.
3: Going back to that point Miriam we've all needed an ally if you can spot it say it aloud and you it may not be impacting you but it certainly could be impacting somebody else so why not remove it then we'd really know if we got the best talent because the playing field would be level in the first place.
2: Fantastic. Thank you. Uh, Latarbo, I know when we've spoken in the past, we've talked a bit about recruitment. Was there anything you want to add, add from Voice's perspective? One of the skill sets that we find the
5: hardest to hire for is women engineers. And what we've had to do is first make the bet on if we hire enough, make, it may be difficult. It may take us three months longer than we want to fill this role for. But if we specifically make sure that this role is filled by a woman engineer, how many other women engineers will openly start looking to apply for this role in future? So the next engineering role becomes even easier simply because someone's like, oh, wait, they they filled this role previously. In the beginning, our first team member that joined our team came to the meeting super, super dressed up, like, wearing almost a suit try to simulate to an environment she thought is what would accept her. And we looked at her, we're like, no, come as you are. And what that helped, as soon as we hired her, is a lot of um, individuals that looked like her or identified with her it could be like, hang on, do you guys have other job specs? Can we apply? And it's it made the uh, process a lot easier um, for us going forward. For some roles, it has been difficult to fill. But I will say, though, you can't be South African and be impacted by the apartheid system and not have redress or trying to solve it deeply rooted within your environment. I mean, within your organization. So we really want to change it. We know that despite um, the country saying there's been like uh, 20 years of freedom, there's still a lot of individuals that are excluded. So we really have to do the work to go find them. And in the beginning, it's difficult. It's paid off in the end now because we're at a position where when I look at my team, I'm super proud. None of us speak the same language, which makes it quite interesting. And none of us come from the uh, same background. We're still relatively small, but we want to keep it that way as we expand internationally because we want other individuals to be like, hang on, they look very different. And I'm being deliberate around what kind of individuals we're looking out for and actually having conversations with candidates uh, to say that uh, this is the type of team members we're looking out for. Do you have them in the, in your network? What are you going to do to make sure that they want to work in our organization? So um, how are they also going to recruit other people coming to,
4: to mm-hmm. join us?
2: Brilliant. Thanks, Latarbo. I'm hearing so much in there that resonates with what Paul was saying. When you said come as you are, I think that is so powerful. This idea that success is pe- enabling people to just be as they are and show up as themselves. Just as we kind of close off this second question, you've described to me before as allyship sometimes being something... That's doing what's scary, it's not always an easy thing to do. And Joanna alluded to this earlier as well. Um, is there anything that you can share about that? I think
4: it, it can feel very overwhelming, especially if you're not used to. And, and we're all not used to diversity, equity, inclusion, because if it existed, we would all be used to it. So we're all not used to it and we're all on a journey. I think it's really important that as individuals, we don't get frightened by it, but we also recognize opportunities to be allies. I was at a recent dinner and speaking to a gentleman who works for an insurance company that have three or four months ago, they instituted de-gendered parental leave. So that means that um, it doesn't matter if you gave birth to the child or not, you can access parental leave. And you know he was going to be the first person in his organization to access it Um, He was very scared to access the whole three months. He was very aware that he was the first person, that people generally didn't take secondments or extended periods off. So they weren't used to, for example, women going off for long periods of time either. And he was very scared to to be the, you know, the person to take it. And he was talking to me about how she was only probably going to take a year, a month and a half off, maybe two at a stretch. And I felt really passionate in that moment that I actually had to be an ally for other men. And within his organization, but also within the broader insurance industry, and tell, I told him very explicitly, you need to take all three months. You can take in different chunks, but take all three months because the next man in your organization or somebody who's interacted with you, who's fighting for a parental leave, they will look to you as a role model. And being a role model is also allyship. And, you know, by the end of the conversation, you know, we we had come to an agreement that that he would consider taking the the maximum time he could. Not necessarily because that's what he needed personally, but because he wanted to be this active role model um, and allow somebody else within his organization or somebody outside to say, you know what? I can take this because that person did, and that person is my role model, but also I can use it as an example if I'm fighting for de parental leave within my organisation. I think sometimes we forget these small actions actually can impact other people, um, both in our own organisations and outside of it.
2: I really like what you said there about being a role model. We all have it within us to be a role model, and actually every step that we take Um, is an example for someone else we've explored what allyship is we have had plenty of really good examples about why it's so important uh, work especially so let's move on to the future of work why is the future of work all about intersectional inclusion and allyship now before we dive in um, just so that we're all on the same page I'd like to just quickly cover what we mean by intersectional
3: Joanna I'll throw this one to you would you mind telling us about that please Intersectional is essentially all of the different intersections of your identity. For example, I am a mixed race uh, woman from a working class background, raised a Catholic. I'm a heterosexual. Uh, maybe I have a disability, an invisible one. So there's all these different identities that make up me, essentially. So it's the intersections of all of those and how they play a part on other impact.
2: Now that I've heard the definition, we can sort of see that the word sort of does what it says on the tin, which I hadn't realised before. As I'm listening to you describe that, it's about not just focusing on one type of diversity and isolation, but being really mindful of all the different ways that we can be different. So, Paul, why do you think that this is important for the future, intersectional inclusion?
1: Interestingly, and following from Joanna's point, I mean, I think it's, it's increasingly that, that we recognise difference. Um, and we're aware of difference and particularly if you, if you're going to be effective as an ally, you're curious, you want to understand, you want to know more about your colleagues. But I do think that increasingly our customers, our stakeholders, our counterparties, they're all looking at us and I, this is very specific insurance and saying, I want to buy my product from an organization that reflects my organization, reflects my difference and the way that I, I, I believe that businesses and communities and societies run. Back in the the XL Catlin days, we had a very successful proposal to ensure an Australian bank, and the team went in, proposed on the pitch, won the business, and the CEO, who happened to be an Australian woman, said to the um, leader of the all-male, middle-aged, white team from XL Catlin, you're a great company, we like doing business with you, but the next time you come to see us or you pitch to us, make sure that your team reflects our team. And I think we're going to see that increasingly there. Again, it, it really is about, to Rebecca's point, I think, well, to Toby's point earlier on about come as you are, be who you want to be. And as an ally, you've just got to be courageous. Um, and as we look out to the future, success will be defined on how well we deal with difference, how well we deal with allyship and how we recognize that intersectionality that exists within all of us.
2: I want to make sure that this we kind of end with an action orientated direction today. So what's next? What can we do going forward to kind of, you know, push allyship uh, into the forefront of people's minds? How can we be more inclusive? Let me start with Rebecca. What is one thing that you think we can do going forward?
4: I think there's one thing that organisations can do going forward. And I think it's to make diversity promotable. Because I think very often a lot of the concepts we've been talking about today become very esoteric. They start in HR or maybe affinity groups or in inclusion group. And they filter so far down an organization. And Usually they get to middle management and they die because middle managers are very overwhelmed. It's not because they're not wanting to be diverse and inclusive. They're just very overwhelmed. And unless this is a promotable activity, it's really going to fall off their radar. I was a middle manager in a very large organisation for quite a while. I know that unless it's something that I'm going to be judged on, it's something that I'm going to mentally deprioritize. And actually, if organisations like the organisation that Lotharbo is trying to develop come in with this concept that diversity is part of the culture of the organisation, That is amazing. But a lot of organisations have legacy issues and the way to overcome those legacy issues, you know, is really to look at making diversity and culture promotable. Is everyone within your organisation doing something small? It doesn't have to be massive. It could be joining a promotions panel. It could be engaging with the recruitment team. It could be organising an event around microaggressions or allyship. These are all small actions, but if every single person in your organization was doing something and they knew that they would, at the promotion cycle, have to justify what they have done, suddenly everyone becomes an ally. I don't really care why people become allies. I don't really care if they become allies just to get promoted. That doesn't really bother me because I believe if everybody is doing the right thing, the right thing becomes the norm.
2: Thank you for sharing that. It's about actually making it part of goal setting and making it part of performance, isn't it? You know, what are you doing to be an ally? I think when I first was, when I first heard this, I kind of wondered, oh, you know, um, is it, is it granular enough? Is it something individuals can do? But actually hearing you talk about it, it absolutely is. Natabo, what would you like to uh, throw in? What's the one thing we can do going forward? I love this so much because um, being practical about it
5: really does help. The one thing that I think all organizations can do is, one, make it easy to have the conversation without anyone feeling like they have to step on eggshells or stepping on glass. It's such a difficult conversation. And the more everybody has it, the more everybody feels comfortable having it, the more people can start asking questions that they genuinely don't know. We believed as an organization that uh, diversity was at our core. We were really um, understanding of everyone. And then George Floyd event happened in the US and we're like, oh, we're not affected. But anyway, we actually pulled our team together to have uh, everybody was on lockdown. Then we had a dialogue session and our whole team just came in to be like, guys, so this happened. How does it make you feel? And it was the first time we realized that half of the company was so open and the other half of the company just felt like they were stepping on eggshells. We realized that one, the one thing that we could do is create more sessions where it is safe for people to ask what they don't know. We don't create settings where people can safely have those conversations. It becomes like a top-down, these are the rules, we have to be diverse, but in action, nobody feels safe talking about it. And it should be OK to just ask and be not
2: attacked for not knowing. Thank you. So making safe space for people to have some of the harder conversations and to learn. Joanna, what about you? What do you think?
3: I would echo a lot of what has already been said, really. One thing I think um, I would always recommend any organisation does is to think about listening groups and focus groups and to get someone um remote or removed from... Uh, the organisation maybe to to run these, or someone who is within the organisation but can't necessarily impact on the future of the progress or success of that particular individual, so that they can feel safe to share some of their views. So just to go back to Latabo's point. If you ask the question, how can we be an ally? How do we make this an environment in which you can work, feel a sense that you can turn up as yourself and you have a sense of belonging? If you ask that question, people will tell you what that looks like, and what that support looks like. So rather than you trying to kind of imagine allyship or create a level of allyship, they can tell you exactly what that looks like.
2: Thank you. And uh, last but not least, Paul, what would you throw into the mix?
1: I, I think you have to be confident both individually and corporately, uh, and recognize that you'll get things wrong. You'll learn, but you will get things wrong. Um, and I can tell you that, yeah, a few organizations that I work with, we have published um, voluntarily our ethnic pay gap data. It's not pretty in some cases, but our colleagues recognize there is a commitment to get to a better place. But the honesty and transparency means a lot. And from a personal perspective, we did a lot of work back in the day with the Walking with the Wounded team, supporting them in their various uh, endeavours, like walking around the coast of the UK. Um, And I spent a lot of time with them. And for one particular member of the team, three occasions that I met him, I, knowing that he didn't have a right arm, went to shake his right hand. And three times he looked at me. And the fourth time we met in a crowded room in a very loud voice, he looked at me and shouted out, you know, I don't have a right hand. Do something about it. And I went up and I blushed a bit and I shook him by the left hand. So I made the mistake, but I learned. Um But actually, what, what was meaningful for him as an, an individual is that I was prepared to engage with him. I was prepared to admit the error of my ways.
2: Thank you. OK, we've got a question. What do the panellists think are the biggest barriers to allyship? Why are not more people doing it? Now, who would like to take this one first? <laughs> Any takers? One of the biggest barriers
4: is words. Very often words can feel very overwhelming, saying the right thing, doing doing it in the right way. And I think, you know, if we can all accept that people are on a journey, not to judge them while they're on that journey. If you come to them with the attitude that everyone is trying to do their best, I think allyship becomes easier. And I think also we make allyship into this really big concept. And again, I go back to my first point. Allyship is just really small individual actions that eventually you don't even know that you're doing you're being an ally in every single one of those actions then it doesn't become this massive you know concept that people have to you know spend hours learning about um and then make sure they use the right language in engaging with
2: any other panelists like to add to that
3: i'd just say not to be afraid of getting things wrong that's a really important thing there are so many different identities experiences um and that's the beauty of the world that we live in and so you you know the expectation for you to know all of the right language and to understand everyone's different experiences um is a is a is a big expectation and so all I would say is you know it's okay to get it wrong I think as long as you make your intentions clear and you know that you reflect on things and you you apologize if it's called defense like most people are forgiving I think it's also about creating environments where people can have difficult Conversa- I call them sometimes clunky conversations, where it doesn't go so smooth. We want to get to a place where behaviours are safe, behaviours are operating inclusively. Then sometimes you have to get that kind of elephant out the room, the bit that's holding you back, so you can actually move forward in a really inclusive way.
0: That's it for today. Thanks to Camelot and all the panellists for what I personally found to be a very enlightening discussion and one that certainly made me think about what I'm going to be doing in 2022. As usual, you can find everything we're up to on the website www.instec.london. If you are wondering why so many insurers, data, technology and analytics companies around the world are working with us to find out what is really going on, meet new partners and share their stories, then please do contact me, Matthew Grant, via LinkedIn or any of us, hello, at instec.london.